Well, good morning again. As Courtney mentioned earlier, we are almost to the conclusion of our summer series uh, going through some of the books of, of, of the Psalms, and it's been an amazing summer for us. But did you know that you can meet Jesus Christ in the Psalms? Did you know that? I mean, Psalms 22, 23, and 24 are a group of psalms written by King David, and it's often been pointed out that these three psalms kind of form a, a trilogy, right? Psalm 22, which we'll look at in a moment, uh, pictures the good shepherd dying for the sheep. Psalm 23 uh, pictures the great shepherd caring for the sheep. If you remember, Jack Supp kicked off our series by looking at Psalm 23. And Psalm 24 uh, pictures uh, the chief shepherd uh, coming back for the sheep. So we have past, present, and future. Christ dies for us. Christ lives for us. Christ will come back for us. Isn't the word of God amazing? Uh, Amen? Right? And, and this psalm today, right? this psalm today was written hundreds of years ago, yet it describes in detail the events of Jesus' crucifixion. And, and this psalm provides a, a portrait of Jesus. Again, even though it's an Old Testament book, right, written a thousand years before he came. And this psalm also is probably quoted more in the New Testament than any other psalm. And of course, it's the one in Jesus' lips as he hung from the cross. So I want to look at this psalm this morning from three perspectives. Three perspectives. Because I believe it paints a picture of a suffering king. A suffering king. Now, we'll look at it first in its original context. Then we'll look at it as it applies to Jesus. And of course, we'll look at it as it applies to us. Now... This particular psalm has 31 verses. And unfortunately, I don't have enough time to go through each and every verse. But I think it's prudent to understand the entire context of it. So I would like to read all 31 verses first. I know that's a lot, but we just agreed the Word of God is amazing, right? All right? So I want to read it because it really, because you need to understand it's really, it's two sections. The first 21 verses is a lament, and the second part of it is an answer to that lament. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Psalm 22, or you can follow along with me as I read it uh, from the monitors. Are we ready? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, and you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you are fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of a dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred, abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise to the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Wow. May God bless the reading of the word. Amen, Amen is right. Uh, so we're going to start by taking a look at this psalm as it applies to the king of Israel, King David. Right? And one of the key principles for understanding Scripture is to attempt to understand it in its original context. Right? And with this particular psalm, it's, it's tempting to start with, with Jesus on the cross and then interpret the psalm that way. And, and, and I, I think this is a mistake. And because, look, I recognize we can find fulfillment in the prophecy in the psalm in Jesus. But when we read back all the details of Jesus' crucifixion into the psalm and, and make it say things it doesn't it may we may say things it doesn't say. So I think it's important right now that we, we start looking at this in the beginning of how it applies to King David. So as with most psalms, we don't have a historical situation to place them in. In other words, we simply don't know um, what was going on that caused the psalmist to feel the way he did. And since it's poetry, right, it's somewhat difficult to try to recreate a situation from the content of the psalm. For example, this psalm talks about David being uh, surrounded by, by, by dogs and, and lions and, and, and bulls. And so we could try to find a time in David's life where he was surrounded by wild animals and attribute that psalm to that experience. We could do that. But since it's poetry, uh, we should understand that these verses as, as imagery. 
uh, describing David's feelings of being trapped or, or being in danger. I believe, uh, I believe Jack Supp uh, mentioned this when he opened this series by saying, we need to understand the book of Psalms as a book of worship from the nation of Israel. Very much like a hymnal. Very much like a hymnal. See, as they worship God in the temple, these were the words that they would sing or use to praise God. Now, this may come as a surprise to you when you look at, you know, the words of Psalm 22. I'm thinking, really? This, this is how they praise God? Or maybe some of you are thinking, really, this is, can we say this in church today? Can we, can, can we really say these things? Can we honestly express feelings of God being far off in church? Or heaven, heaven forbid, God is silent? Right. And can we honestly express him in front of everyone? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And this is one of the first nuggets I think I got from this psalm. That it is okay to express these feelings in church. Matter of fact, it's expected. It's even required that we be honest before God in worship. Right? That we come before him and say what's going on. No pretending. God already knows what you're feeling anyway, but no pretending. You know, we don't want to say things like, you know, Lord, things are bleak at the moment, um, but you know what? I'm going to be happy and just sing. Folks, we all struggle. We all struggle. I get that. We struggle. And you know what? It's okay to express when you're struggling because it's truth. It's truth, and God honors truth. However, and you knew there was a however, right? However, in that truth, there is something more. Look at verse 3. We could. It says, that yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. You see, there is a recognition of who God is. And in that, there is submission. And I think this is a second nugget here, that we can be honest before God, and we need to be honest before God. But we also need to be aware of who he is. That he is the king of kings. That he is holy. That he is God. Now, the first section of this lament, like I mentioned this earlier, um, of Psalm 22, the first 21 verses takes the form of a, of a lament. It, it's King David just pouring out his soul. Pouring out his desperate soul. Just enumerating, I mean, all the things he is facing and feeling and all the dangers that surround him. And if you know the life of King David, my, oh my, he had a lot. He was surrounded. He, 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 he faced danger, uh, persecution. But, you know, and this actually just blew me away. Interestingly, in the midst of this lament, David makes two incredible requests, Right? Look at verses 11 and 19. It says, 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. And 19 says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. David's obviously looking for deliverance. We get that. He wants God to act and change the situation he's in, to save him from all the horrible things he's facing. But that's not the main focus, is it? 
the main, first, strongest request is for God to be near. For God to be near. Let me ask you this. In the midst of our own troubles, is our first request for God's presence or for God's power? Do we want him to change things or do we want him to be present with us? Full transparency here. For me personally, my prayer is usually that God would change things, that he would just solve my problems, that he would just, just fix it, Lord. You know, I'm going to call down his power and just have him change it all instantly for me. At times he does, but often not. I have to wait. But Psalm 22 teaches us that our first desire needs to be for God himself, for his presence. Not for what he can do for us, but for who he is. Sometimes I think Christians look at God as their own personal Santa Claus, right? Whose knee we sit on and, and ask for all the things we want, and then we go off and wait for him to deliver. No, no. Even in the midst of dire trouble, King David prays first for the nearness of God. Maybe this is why David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Now, this section of lament ends after uh, uh, verse 21, and the palm takes a really sudden and drastic turn in focus and direction. All right? And as we can see, starting in verse 22, the last half of the psalm is full of praise, full of, full of optimism. And verse 24 says this, For he has not despised or abhorred, abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And you know what? This psalm uh, draws an, an incredible close with an incredible picture of all people everywhere worshiping. Because verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is quite a journey for David, isn't it? I mean, think about it, right? From personal depths of despair and feeling forsaken and abandoned by God to being exuberant and overflowing with worship and seeing God on a global scale. I believe the second part of this psalm is to give hope to the first part. But even as David expresses feelings of doubt, despair, hopelessness, he knew that he could look ahead and that God would answer him. And so can we. So can we. Let's now take a look at the psalm on the lips of Jesus. Matthew 27, 46 puts the exact word of Psalm 22, 1 on the lips of Jesus, right? We know this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And folks, this is no accident. This is no case of Jesus just happening to say the words uh, of David that he said so many years ago. No. Without a Jesus is without a doubt quoting the words of the psalm. And by doing so on the cross, he makes it clear that these words on Psalm 22 are his words. He claims them for himself. 
Now, Scripture only records Jesus quoting verse 1. And I know there are some who believe that Jesus may have recited the entire uh, psalm from the cross, but I don't see Scripture supporting that. But as the gospel writers describe the action of the crucifixion, it really gives us uh, um, more evidence that Psalm 22 is being acted out. In other words, I mean... In other words, it gives us the right to look back at the psalm and see the things David expressed and see how they came to fulfillment in Jesus' crucifixion. And I think this gives us a right to look at the entire psalm as a portrait of Jesus. And this is why I say this. Because I see a number of very direct parallels, very direct evidence of fulfillment of prophecy. So I want to take a moment, a brief moment, and look at some of the elements in Psalm 22 that find prophetic fulfillment in Jesus' death. First, the most familiar to us, right? Forsaken by God. 22.1, we have David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, we see in Matthew 27, 46 and Mark uh, 15, 34, both have Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David felt forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. He had the weight of the sins of the world and experienced the forsakenness of the Father. I know there are a few different interpretations of what is meant by the word forsaken. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long time trying to understand what it all means. He came away as confused as when he began. But I like how Pastor John MacArthur uh, describes it. And this is what um, John says. I guess I can call him John. He's not here. That's what John says. When Christ was forsaken by the Father, their separation was not one of nature, essence, or substance. Christ did not, in any sense or degree, cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity. He did not cease to be the son any more than a child who sins severely against his human father ceases to be his child. But Jesus did for a while cease to know the intimacy of fellowship with his heavenly father. Just as a disobedient child ceases for a while to have an intimate, normal, loving fellowship with his human father. Every time I look at crucifixion, I'm overwhelmed. I don't get it. I don't understand that love. I just don't. I'm amazed by it. But this is what I know. There was no other way. Jesus had to become sin on our behalf in order to save us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If there's ever an amen, this is a time of the sermon you want to say amen. Right? This is amazing. This is unbelievable. This is why later on we will celebrate the bread and cup. 
because we need to remember and, and, and never, never forget the cost. Sorry, I digress. He was mocked and scorned by man. Verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And look at the parallel in Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Wow, what a parallel. Of course, we're all familiar with the great thirst. Verse 15, right? My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. And of course, we see in the New Testament, John 19, 28, says, I thirst. Pierce hands and feet. 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and feet, and the parallels in Luke 24, 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Five, the humiliation. 17, I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. In Luke 23, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. I just want to stop for a moment right here. Um, just talk a little bit about his humiliation and do my best to put this in proper context. Jesus, no doubt, suffered the most shameful, dishonoring treatment imaginable for one of his stature. He is the king of kings, lords of lords. Never before, never again, will one so prestigious as the king of heaven suffer such violent mistreatment at the hands of humanity. The prophet Isaiah, prophesying, prophesying over 800 years prior, tells us that Jesus was marred more than any man. Isaiah 52, 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Listen to this. Jesus suffered at the hands of sinners the external application of divine wrath then ultimately suffered at the hands of his father the full and unmitigated unleashing of heaven's fury upon him. And it's because of this humiliation that you and me, we can have life eternal. Amen, Amen is correct. And finally, they cast lots for his clothing. Verse 18 they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The parallel verse in the New Testament is John 19, 23 through 24, which says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garment and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, 
woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it so to see whose shall it be. This was to, f- to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So what is the portrait of Jesus in Psalm 22? It is a picture of the suffering king. And folks, it is significant, not because of its unique content, but because it's a picture painted so far in advance of the event of Jesus' crucifixion. And as we see so many explicit details, they're fulfilled by Jesus. Have I mentioned the word of God is amazing? But you know, as I looked at this psalm, as I was preparing and studying for it, I couldn't help to think about Psalm 90, verse 1, which says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. We, we, we marvel at Christmas time of how Jesus would shed his, his majestic robes of glory. Now he would stoop so low to become fully human. But this psalm reminds us there's much more. Remember verse 6? Jesus expressed how he's being treated, um, not even as a man, as he's being crucified, but as a worm. Our creator treated as a worm. Here is our king, the king of kings, in fact, once again, being humiliated on our behalf. It's not a pretty picture. In fact, it's an ugly picture. It's a picture of pain and great suffering and rejection. And yet, that's not the entire picture of Psalm 22, is it? No. The second part of the psalm expresses the triumph of the cross and the resurrection. Again, look at the words of, of, of verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his, his face from him, but has heard when he cried out to him. This is why I believe this is a picture of the suffering king, because Jesus emerges through the suffering and the horrors of the cross. The victory. The victory. Amen. So, what does this psalm mean to us? What's the application here? We've seen this psalm on the lips of David. We've seen this psalm on the lips of Jesus. But what does it really mean for us as as we go forward? What's the application? Let me start with this. The divine origin of the Bible is demonstrated through its frequent use of prophecy. Of all the books of the world, only the Bible contains accurate, predictive prophecy because only the God of the Bible knows the future and has the power to bring it to pass. This psalm was written 100 years before Christ went to the cross. This book is the word of God and it's truth. Every single word. You can take it to the bank. That may be a bad illustration, but you know what I'm saying. Secondly, 
This psalm calls us to honesty before God. If we're feeling he's far away, if we're feeling he is silent, we need to express it. We need to express it. We need to say it. David did. Jesus did. Listen, the question, where are you, Lord, is acceptable to him. Right? He, it's not a question that's going to get God mad at us. It's an honest question, and God honors honesty. Now, my wife hates this phrase. To be fair, right? the psalm calls us to submission to God as well. I pointed this out earlier from verse 3. In our questioning, in our doubts, in our feeling like God is far off, we need to remember that God is God. Even David had to remind himself of all that God has done in the past, which I think is a great exercise for all of us when we're feeling God is, is, is distant, when God is silent, because we need to look back and remind ourselves of all that God has done for us. And I believe when we do this, this will build our faith up, give us hope, give us encouragement. I think a great exercise and I don't do this consistently, but I've done this in the past, is to journal you know, daily. Write down your prayer requests. Write down what the Lord is teaching you through your, your, your daily time. And then you go back and you look and you read it. And you see, oh my, God did answer this. Oh my. You, you see your prayers answered. Matter of fact, I think maybe one day we should just have a prayer service just thanking God and nothing else. Let's just thank them, all right? This church has been here for 40 plus years. We have a lot to be thankful for, amen? amen? All right, that's my action. I'll take that on. The cross reminds us also that Jesus has been there as well. When we feel the need to express our despair, our frustrations over God's apparent silence, please remember, Jesus felt that way. We have a God who understands. We have a God who's been there. And finally, the psalm reminds us to look ahead. To look ahead. To know that God will hear and God will answer. I don't know how long it takes for God to answer your prayers. Right? I don't know. But I know this. He will. He will. At some point, there will be an answer. This is what I know. God will come again. He will save. He will forgive. And he will deliver. I know that. So, I don't know where you're struggling today. I really don't. Or what areas of your life you look at and you wonder, maybe with pain and distress, God, where are you? Why are you silent, Lord? Why, why won't you come and answer me? I don't know. This is what I do now. I'm going to steal a page or borrow a page out of Elder James Shepherd's James Schaefer opening statement from last Sunday. Who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares like Jesus cares like Jesus cares. Jesus cares for you. He cares. Let me just say this. 
He hears your cry, and he will answer. So please, hang in there. Be patient. Be honest before him. Do not forget Jesus is king. He is still in control of the universe. He's still on the throne, and he's desiring to reach into our lives to bring his presence close. Psalm 22 paints a picture of a suffering king whose suffering and death and resurrection were for us. And because of this, it's important to remember what Christ did for us on his behalf.